Hi, this is Taylor Stuber. And this is Sean Smithgall. We are both clinical pharmacists, faculty members, and your hosts for The Postgraduate Pharmacist. Welcome back, Sasso Squad, and any new listeners to another episode of The Postgraduate Pharmacist, where we're all about helping you separate and stand out as you prepare for postgraduate training. From current events to expert advice, we bring you up-to-date content every other Monday related to postgraduate training. Join the Sasso Squad today and follow us on Twitter at PG Pharmacist or Instagram and LinkedIn at The Postgraduate Pharmacist. And check out our website at postgraduatepharmacist.com where you can get all of our latest content. If you love the show and want to support what we're doing, check out ways to spread the word on our website or buy us a cup of coffee. We could always use the caffeine. So late last fall, we talked about is postgraduate training the right fit for you with David Stewart. Great episode where we went over ways to decide if this is a choice you're making because you want to or is someone else making you feel like you have to or need to in order to be successful. So one thing that can muddy this contemplation is whether or not you feel you're qualified enough to apply for and perform as a postgraduate pharmacist. Ah, yes. The dream-crushing, self-esteem-destroying imposter syndrome. So paired with imposter syndrome, I feel we have this crisis of professional identity formation within the academy. Candidates saying, what is it? What is my professional identity? What is my role? Overall, it's really difficult to balance true deficiencies that need actual development before residency versus perceived deficiencies that are actually commonly felt by all candidates seeking postgraduate training and, quite frankly, most pharmacists in the profession as well. I think there's a huge difference between having a healthy fear and an unhealthy fear when it comes to having imposter syndrome. Definitely a topic worth exploring, and hopefully we can calm some nerves today by doing so. And to help us with this discussion on imposter syndrome and professional identity, and to just overall liven up the podcast with her amazing, upbeat personality, we have joining us today Dr. Lindsay Mosley, a curricular coordinator for Auburn University Harrison College of Pharmacy. Lindsay, welcome to The Postgraduate Pharmacist. Thank you, Taylor and Sean. I'm very excited to be here today and join you in this discussion. So, Lindsay, can you give the Sasso Squad insight into the journey that brought you to where you are today? Absolutely. So, it was quite serendipitous. So, I applied to serve on an AACP committee years ago, which I hear very hard to get accepted into, but I was somehow chosen to serve on the committee. And the charges that year were to explore professional identity within the pharmacy academy. So that's when I first dipped my toe in this water was being selected to serve on a committee. And just through that process, I read the literature. I had many, many discussions. I met people nationally. I wrote book chapters, I published papers, gave national presentations. So really it's been about four years now that I've been diving deeper and deeper into this water and learning more and more about it. So I'm pretty sure after four years, we can consider you an expert in the matter. I like to think that I have some expertise maybe, but definitely not an expert. (laughs) Well, either way, it's great having you on the show, Lindsay. So let's crack this discussion open with our first question. Let's just start off with the basics. So for those that might not know it, they've probably all heard of it, but what is imposter syndrome and is it just restricted to student pharmacists? 
Well, imposter syndrome, which I love that it's called a syndrome because at the end of the day, it's not like a diagnosis or a (laughs) disease or an abnormality. Really, it's something that we all have felt before, but it's that feeling of inadequacy, really despite being qualified for something. Perhaps you're feeling less capable or you discount yourself. Um, I think it's an experience that we have all had. So to answer the question about, is it restricted to student pharmacists? Absolutely not. I think it's applicable to anybody specifically doing something new for the first time or the first few times that they do it. I think we all have discounted ourselves or had that self-doubt associated with new experiences. You know, and if you think about it, just as a society, we're not really conditioned to talk about that self-doubt, to really express that. And so any new experience you enter, it's so common to think, wow, everyone around me has it, has it all together. They, they know what they're doing. They're perfect in every way. And I'm the only one who's doubting my capabilities because that's the perception that I have. Because again, nobody's talking about it. So again, this is an, an experience, not a syndrome, but an experience or a phenomenon that I would say likely everybody has encountered, even people who are seasoned in their career and have new experiences, I'm sure experience this feeling of inadequacy compared to those around them. I, I like that you mentioned we're not conditioned to express that. I feel like that's so true. Like you're going to be judged when you feel like, I feel like I don't know what I'm doing or I feel like I don't have enough training to do this, but I'm too scared to kind of say that out loud or let others know that so they can reassure me. I remember when I was first starting off as a clinical pharmacist in the hospital, I was with one of my preceptors, one of the seasoned pharmacists. I was like, so how bad am I compared to everybody else you've trained? How bad is it? He's like, well, you're not the worst. You're not the worst (laughs) resident we've ever had to come through here. But I was like, but that made me feel a lot better because it was like, this is not normalizing it, but there's people who are worse than me. There's people that are like slightly better. So everybody struggles. So that kind of helped me out. But up until that point, I was like, man, I'm, I'm struggling with some severe imposter syndrome right mm-hmm. here. Yeah. yeah. And, I, and I definitely think it has ebbs and flows as you progress in your career. You try new things, new things that are unfamiliar, that you're not sure exactly what you're doing at that point. But everybody's been there before. So that's what I always tell my students. You know, I was once in your shoes. You'll be in my shoes one day. We'll all have these feelings of doubt and what our true capabilities are. And you still experience those even as you progress in your career. So it's just an ongoing thing that you have to deal with. And we'll talk about different ways that we can deal with that and overcome that feeling later. So I love that explanation of imposter syndrome. I'm probably going to steal that, Lindsay. Please do. Definitely. On another vein, you know, what is professional identity? How does it relate to imposter syndrome? Yeah. So we all know what identity means, right? It's like who we are. We think about professional identity. It's really internalizing the values and the behaviors of that profession. The definition that the task force and the committees that I work with, what we like to say is it's thinking, feeling, and acting like blank, blank being the profession. So in our instance, it would be thinking, feeling, and acting like a pharmacist. And so if you think about like pharmacy school, so we're trained to think, right? Here's a patient and let's think through the problems and create a plan, et cetera, et cetera. We're also conditioned to act. So we have PBAs and labs and rotations and we put on our white code and, you know, we act like the profession. But what's really difficult 
is that feeling component of the professional identity. And that's really what identity is, is feeling, internalizing that the essence of that profession, the values, the norms, the behaviors, all of that into feeling like you are a pharmacist. And that's really difficult. It takes a lot of time to develop that. And, you know, even residents, I would say, and, you know, new graduates, if we had to take a survey, I would think that many of them are probably thinking, I don't quite feel like a pharmacist. Takes lots and lots of experiences and time to kind of develop that feeling. And so obviously, if you're not feeling like that profession, that can definitely lead to feelings of inadequacy and and imposter syndrome that we just talked about. One thing I see a lot when I'm reading letters of recommendation are these preceptors or RPDs will use the term transitioning into a clinical pharmacist. And I see that a lot and I see it worded different ways. But I think that what they're actually saying is what you just described right now, that these residents at the time or postgraduate trainees are finding that professional identity and no longer just standing there in that role, but acting like that clinical pharmacist or whatever position they're in. Yeah. And that I really like how you described professional identity. I, I don't think I've ever really heard it expressed like that, that feeling that you're a pharmacist and that what you're doing matters and that you're contributing in some way to the common good. I think a lot of us lack that feeling or at times can lack that feeling. Maybe some days we feel like it more than others. And I really think that relates back to imposter syndrome, where you have that feeling of inadequacy, maybe because you're not feeling like you are a pharmacist. So lots of connections that can be drawn there. I totally agree with y'all. And I was just going to add the point about when does professional identity end? I love that question. And we've <laughs> talked about that in our task force and kind of what we've come to the conclusion is that it never does. So there's never like a point in time where you're like, check, check, check. I've developed my professional identity. It's something that grows and expands and you construct and then even like reconstruct. So it goes through periods of like progression and periods of regression over an entire career. I think that's such an important message for residents or people new in any experience is like, you're going to feel inadequate probably for a period of time. And that is completely normal and expected, but that doesn't mean it should stop you. So it's like normalizing that feeling, but also pushing through because it's experiences that really help you develop that sense of identity and that feeling component. So caring for a patient for the first time or having to give constructive feedback to a student or whatever the new experience is really helps shape you. So that may be uncomfortable at times to experience some of those things. Those are really good professional identity builders, those experiences. Yeah. Outside this context, you know, I always hear the saying, you know, it's good to be comfortable with being uncomfortable. So it sounds like a lot of that could be applied here. So I'm really glad you just said that, too, because before you said that, when you were given the definition or what is professional identity, I was conditioned once again to sit there and think, oh, gosh, self-reflect. Have I have I found my own professional identity? Once again, too afraid to say it out loud <laughs> until you said that. And now I'm like, oh, now I feel better because uh, you said it never ends. And I was like, I don't I was literally thinking to myself as you were talking about it. I don't think I finalized my own professional identity. No. And that makes sense. We're all on our journey. And I think part of your professional identity, though, Sean, is a podcaster. I can 
definitely say that. <laughs> that and that's what it that's what was screaming at me it's like you're not living inside out what a podcaster is yet you know i'm getting there we both are too <laughs> <laughs> Well, I definitely think that's a piece of your identity. So now that we've kind of identified these two things, defined them and kind of talked about their scope, how can you identify and reflect and feel if you have imposter syndrome fears that aren't actually true? Or how can you kind of help overcome or correct this? Yes. I think it goes back to what we mentioned, or one strategy kind of goes back to what we mentioned in the beginning is kind of normalizing that feeling and being transparent about it. And for mentors or educators who might be listening to this, I think that we have to remember the value that we have with helping students through this process, talking with them about self-doubt, helping them reflect on their feelings, really just sharing experiences and being empathetic to those are huge things that can help students overcome it. So it's not necessarily avoiding the feeling. It's just acknowledging that it's there, reflecting and talking about it, I think are probably the biggest things that that can be done to kind of help students navigate these feelings. And perhaps these are feelings they've never had. You know, a lot of times pharmacy students and pharmacists, you know, top of their class, they, they may not have really ever felt, quote unquote, inadequate before. So kind of unpacking this new feeling for many really probably requires the role of a mentor, I would think, or a role model. Mm, yeah, absolutely. I'm interested. Let me ask you guys this. So reflection plays a big part in identity. So it's like reflecting on experiences and interactions that you've had and kind of internalizing those experiences as it kind of forms who you are. So I'm curious, do y'all have any reflective practices that that you partake in? Probably to an OCD degree. Basically, every interaction I have with students, as an example, like anytime I teach, anytime I precept, anytime we see a patient together, I just review the entire thing in my head step by step. And I think, okay, what were their facial expressions at the beginning versus the end? Was I engaging with them? Were they falling asleep? Did they seem intrigued by what we talked about? I pick up on, you know, it wasn't that thorough of an experience. I think, well, what could I do to do better? How could I change that? I reflect on that. And then like the OCD, that's basically what I do for everything. I see a patient. I'm just like, man, that did not go well. I didn't feel like that was a good encounter. Why was that? And try to reflect on how to improve all that. Very nice. So I'll kind of put a plug in for pharmacy academia because I feel like that's naturally built into like what you do and what your expectations are because we do have annual evaluations where we're asked to reflect on our teaching and, and things that we did. But I agree with Sean, like after each encounter, you know, I, I think about like how it went, the timing of everything, things that I said, how could I have said it better? How could I have said it different? How could I simplify it, streamline it a little bit? Are the students getting what they need to get out of it? So I feel like from like a teaching or educator standpoint, I definitely agree with, with Sean. The same after when I practice and I work with my physicians, thinking after rounds on my walk back to my office, like, okay, how could I have worded this different to come across a little bit better or more clear? It doesn't take long. You can brainstorm and think about things quickly and it doesn't have to be this profound like I need to sit for an hour and meditate each day on mm-hmm. on on these things or reflect but I think those little things you know have helped me yeah it usually occurs in the car on the ride home or something like that or the car is yeah. a great great or, or, place the car the car until you get the screaming babies in there <laughs> yeah one of my favorite questions specifically for P4s to like help them reflect, because obviously, you know, what went well, what could have been better? Those are great starting points. And I love those questions. 
an additional question that I love asking is like, what did X mean to you? And X could be an experience, it could be an interaction, it could be teaching in front of class, whatever it is. But like, what did it mean to you? Because really unpacking, or how did it make you feel even? And if they had negative emotions, because like identity work is sometimes uncomfortable and it's not always positive. So I definitely think that role models and mentors play a big role in just unpacking like the feeling components. Like, why did you feel that way? Like, what were, like, let's unpack that feeling for a minute. Let's sit with it. Let's recognize it and let's unpack it. Just helping students navigate some of those uncomfortable and or pleasant experiences is a great, great way. Drum roll here. This is Taylor and I's favorite part of the podcast. And we've got a new thing going. If you can get them all right, we'll send you some PGP swag. We got some... uh, (laughs) (laughs) mugs and t-shirts and hoodies and if we get you back on the podcast sometime in the future you know we'll up the ante and up the prize but for today we're going to offer you a postgraduate t-shirt or equivalent very nice (laughs) pressure is on i gotta have this memorabilia this merch merch so i'll ask the first question so one thing i've noticed is that songs i've listened to oldies for me then are now oldies for kids now so there's several songs that turned 20 years old this year if you've seen those kind of can you imagine this is turning 20 things on social media so there's a lot of songs that are turning 20 think back to 2002 for me 2002 i was seventh grade at indian trail middle Mm -hmm. school and i was probably wondering when my braces were going to come off so think back put yourself in those shoes and uh, tell me which of these songs did not turn 20 this year. So this is a did not. Okay. So all of them but one turned 20 this year. Is it Lose Yourself by Eminem? I'm going to need a demo with each of these, <laughs> please. Taylor, will you will you sing them as I say them? I, I can't do that. <laughs> uh, it came out after Slim Shady, if you, if you know that song. Oh, uh, yes. Thank you for the point of reference. Soak Up the Sun by Sheryl Crow. Bye 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 by NSYNC. Okay. Clocks by Coldplay. And then Can't Stop by the Red Hot Chili Peppers. Which one was not turning 20 this year? All right. So I feel about 5% confident in my answer. <laughs> if I had to quantify it. But I would say the Cheryl Crow song, Soak Up the Sun. I think that one's older, if I had to guess, than mm-hmm. 2002. Hmm. Lose Yourself was, I remember that when I was like eighth grade, I was, uh, you know, in our locker room before basketball games, you know, we would listen to that. I'm going to go with Lindsay. One thing that's hard about this is songs these days go through in like a couple weeks. They're popular and then they're not popular. Whereas back in 2002, it's like a song stayed popular for six months to a year before it sort of fizzled out. So actually, the song that was not in 2002 was Bye 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 NSYNC. Was it older? It is older. It, it actually came out in the year 2000. Sean, do you still listen to all those songs? E- every day in that order. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> On your playlist. The Get Hyped playlist. Yeah. <laughs> all right. My question, I guess, kind of relates to you, Lindsay. So you and your husband, y'all just built a house, correct? On a mm-hmm. on a pretty good sized property. Like six, is it six acres? Um, 33. 33. Oh, I was way off. <laughs> way off. Okay. Well, that shows how much. That's I mean, okay. I'm sure you told me at some point. but <laughs> I mean, you were in the ballpark. I knew it was of. on a large, large piece of land. So, well, I hope y'all are enjoying that. Nice to have some privacy there. My question for you is how many square feet are in one acre? Now, question. I'm going to give you multiple choice. Okay, good. Were you going to ask about rounding? and? Nope, I was going to say, can I phone a friend? 
The friend is in my husband. Oh. <laughs> but since it's multiple choice, maybe I can get close. First answer is 25,640, 43,560, 61,750, or 72,600. Guys, this is embarrassing because I le- legit have no idea. Um, it's really hard to quantify that that large of a square footage when you're like, well, my house is like 2,000 square feet. You know, how many acres is that? Yes. You know, test taking strategies tell us to pick a number in the middle. <laughs> so I feel like this is a good time to employ that strategy. So I think of the 40,000 and the 120 were the two outliers. So let's go with the 61,000. I thought it was 12,000. So I'm going to go with 25,000. All right. Well, sorry you both didn't get it correct. <laughs> Lindsay, you had it narrowed down. You had a good test taking strategy because it was one of the middle numbers. Um, <laughs> close. It was 43,560. I did the quick math for 33 acres. That is 1,437,480 square feet. So you, oh you could build goodness. a pretty big, big house on there. Okay, yeah, yeah, pretty big. I was trying to take my lot that we have and calculate because I was like, I know it's 0.5 acres. I was trying (laughs) to figure out, I know it's 100 feet wide and 200, you know, how many square feet is that? I was completely off. The good news is I don't have to mow any of it. So (laughs) that is excellent news. I couldn't imagine mowing over a million square feet. No, me neither. (laughs) Good question, Taylor. Yeah, that was a good one. So back to the content on. Imposter syndrome, professional identity. You already mentioned, Lindsay, that professional identity is something that you do internally. And so I know a lot of our listeners are probably wondering about, okay, once I do this or I attempt to do this or I start to do this, how is this going to benefit me or how can I really show this off? And so how can someone develop or market professional identity into their self-branding if it's even possible? That's a great question. And what I think people probably don't realize is that personal identity is absolutely a component of the professional identity that they hope to develop. So the one thing I would say as it relates to self-branding is just an exploration in who you are. It's like think to yourself, what do I identify as? What are those complexities and those identities that make up me? Because at the end of the day, we're all different. Right. And so what makes me unique is different than what makes you too unique, et cetera. And so really thinking about like who I am, what are my values? What are my beliefs? What are things that are important to me and why are they important to me? And that sounds really easy, right? Like, oh, yeah, I I value this or I believe in this. But it's really not quite as easy as you think, especially because it evolves over time. So like today, something may be important to me, but next week it may not be quite as important to me. And so just kind of like constantly thinking about who I am, what do I identify as really helps you lead with that in a professional setting. Right. So if I know, for example, that I'm like highly organized I'd want to lead with that in a conversation, a professional conversation I was having perhaps with a future employer or um, a residency director, et cetera. It's really thinking about who you are. Again, much harder to answer than you might realize. You know, I love how you mentioned how personal identity and professional identity kind of intersect. And I think that that can definitely be used in branding yourself and kind of helping you stand out as a candidate if you're pursuing residency or other postgraduate training, one thing that I was thinking of was, you know, the letter of intent where you can 
express those things, communicate them, write them down. And that'll definitely help you identify yourself and help program directors have a sense of what your goals are and what you want to accomplish and what kind of your vision as a professional is. So I, I really like thinking about how you could incorporate that into, you know, the other pieces of your application even. Absolutely. And I think as educators too, we need to keep thinking about helping students see them as unique beings and individual in a sea of other students. You know, it can be very easy to feel like a number maybe in a, as a student pharmacist, but helping students like realize and and identify the things that make them unique is perhaps something we should do more often in pharmacy curriculum and really curriculum, uh, higher ed curriculum and professional school curriculum across the U.S. And Taylor, with you mentioning letter of intent, it appears to me that students are already doing this. They just don't know they're doing this. Like they're putting in things like their letter of intent, things that reflect back to what they consider to be the professional identity, but they're probably not making that connection between the two. They're saying these things, which are based on that internal reflection, and they're just not identifying that. So I think it's neat. You know, I just like to point out that I think you're doing that and you may have already done that. And just go back and look at that and see if you can identify what themes come out that are related to your professional identity. Absolutely. And see if if they match to them. Because you were saying it constantly involves constantly changes. We recommend a lot of times they do a letter of intent early and come back and reflect on that. That should be some of the things that they're adjusting or changing is especially during their practicum or APPE rotations. Has that changed? Have I developed? Has, Has my mindset transformed and how can I adjust those materials. Also, I think this is kind of the perfect antidote, if you will, to imposter phenomenon, because, you know, that's the feeling of being inadequate. But on the flip side of that, like exploring who you are and not hiding from it, like really thinking about who you are and leading with this is who I am and I'm unapologetic about it, is kind of, if you think about it, an antidote to feeling inadequate. You know, it's kind of like owning who you are. I try to do that with sarcasm, but it doesn't always work. I'm like, I'm sarcastic. Let me own that. You you do. You do. <laughs> I shouldn't own that too much. So kind of segueing into the last thing I want to talk about today with our listener group, you know, it's obviously mostly going to be students, but we have some educators that listen to our podcast, maybe some program directors or preceptors or that at least use it in some capacity. And I think they could find this episode helpful. So What advice would you give those listeners to support professional identity formation and perhaps curb or limit imposter syndrome? I know you were one of the authors on a paper from, I believe, one of the committees on AACP about professional identity formation. So I think it'd be helpful if you wanted to share some of the things that you learned from that. Absolutely. And what we know about building professional identity, you know, and so it's iterative. We've talked about that. It's it's evolving. We've talked about that. But there's definitely things that educators and students can do. Kind of it's a two-sided coin. It takes participation on both ends to really help develop that sense of professional identity. The first thing I want to recommend is don't undervalue relationships. Relationships are one of the most important key builders of professional identity. So role models, you know, you've heard us talk about it today. Mentors, kind of having a trusted advisor is so important. And I think for students, it can be very intimidating to seek that out. But just know that I would think 
99.9% of faculty and staff and preceptors want to develop relationships with their students and are open to that. And so I think if students really feel a bond with someone, a faculty, a staff, preceptor, just take the steps to really initiate that and to cultivate that, that bond and that relationship. So I think that's step one, because we know relationships are huge in building professional identity. And part of the reason for that is because of the feedback component. So you're much more apt, right, to like receive and be open to feedback from someone who's trusted, someone you trust, and someone you know who's been in your shoes. So receiving feedback is very important. But also, you don't ever want to internalize feedback as like, I'm not good enough. You know, we've talked about imposter syndrome today. It can be very easy when you get negative or constructive feedback to think, oh, goodness, I'm not good enough. Just like I thought, I'm not good enough. But really like taking a step out and just saying, okay, this is feedback for development. This is not feedback in who I am as a person. It's just something to keep in mind whenever you give feedback, because that's like the role of the preceptor or the educator, right? Is to give feedback to help you improve. It's also like, I love this, positive affirmations. So just keeping in mind that you earned a spot. So it can be very easy, like for, you know, I work solely with first year students. So a lot of them, when I talk to them are like, I don't know what I'm doing here. Like, I understand that everyone else is here and everyone else earned a spot, but I, I it was like a fluke, right? Like they just, they overlooked my application and just sent me straight through. They didn't actually like evaluate my application materials, but that's not true right? Every student earned a spot. Same with residents. They earned a spot to be in that program. Same with like getting your uh, first job. Like you interviewed, you have the qualifications, like you deserve to be here. So I think it's just keeping some of those positive affirmations in mind and again, not internalizing feedback in a negative way. So yeah, those are just some things to keep in mind for both students and educators. Sean, what do you, what do you think? I was going to say, when you take the number of students that go to a college level degree and you take the number of students that take that college level degree and go to a graduate level degree, I mean, it's not very many. And when you, when you narrow it down to the individual profession, I mean, there's not that many students out of the number that have gone to high school that get all the way to a graduate program like pharmacy school. So that's a huge accomplishment. So I like that you were saying you've earned a spot and you have. And then further to go on to postgraduate training, that's an even smaller pool. So when you when you back that all the way up to high school, it's like a very, very small number of people get that far. So every time you get into one of these next levels, have that, you know, I earned this, I got this because of my hard work, and I can keep achieving more. But going back to what you're saying about mentors, I loved everything that you said. I wish I could just bottle it up and say like, here's another reason why we keep saying, get those mentors, contact those mentors. I mean, you, you kind of summarized it really well. I wanted to highlight a couple of things you were saying. You were saying, get that mentor one to bounce these ideas off of, but two, to get that feedback. And I think that's another point to say, get, try to get more than one. A lot of times we seek someone who's going to give us the advice we want to hear. And I know that's why, and, and that's just a natural thing about building relationships, someone who's like me, someone who sees things the way I see them. When I look at my mentors, a lot of them are similar to me, but I think getting multiple mentors, even some that may not, especially ones that see things differently would be great because then you get that diverse feedback. 
and you can get some of those different points of views. Okay, this one mentor told me this, but this one told me this, you know, and then really think about that. Why, why are these different? Which one, which one should I, should I really do? And because you might not always get the best advice from a single mentor. Sometimes I probably don't say the best advice for a student, but collectively between me and other mentors, you know, we can steer students in the right direction. That is such a great point, Sean. I'm glad you mentioned that. And just a couple other things I want to mention, you know, as educators, I tend to think about, you know, my students that are on rotations with me and how you can model process of not knowing something, but asking those questions, you know, when I have a topic or drug or disease state that I don't know about, verbalizing that with with your students helping them see that you're still learning, you know, as you grow in your role as a pharmacist. I think that that's important. One of the other things I want to give my wife a shout out, Carly, hope you're listening. She's probably (laughs) not. One of the things her residency program did is they had an interprofessional imposter syndrome dinner where they, they all stood up and kind of talked about their own imposter syndrome and how they felt. And she just recalls one of the physicians getting up that was very accomplished and seasoned and talked about how they still feel that same thing. And so I thought that was really eye-opening because you see these people that you view in in such an esteemed light still have these feelings that it's normal. And I think that that's important. We have to normalize it. That's it. Those are great thoughts. Yeah, we, we should normalize that thing. You just, the dinner, make everything. As long as, long as somebody else <laughs> yeah. pays for it, right? Well, that's, 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 right. that's the key. Well, Lindsay, we'll uh, link that paper, a link to that paper so y'all can get some more downloads, you know? Thank you. (laughs) But uh, I think it has a lot of good information that kind of expands on some of the things that we talked about here today. Do you have anything, last minute advice you want to leave the Sasso squad with? Yes. One last just token or nugget, if you will, clinical pearl perhaps, is just to keep in mind never to beat yourself up. So as a self-proclaimed perfectionist, which is, is I'm not saying is a good thing, but I've identified that about myself, right? And so I take active steps not to beat myself up. So anytime I do something, my first thought like after it's done is like, oh, what are the million things that I did wrong? You know, I don't take a moment to think what went well. And so just like reframing that thought, like what went well? I don't want to beat myself up. And so like putting those more in the forefront than those negative thoughts about yourself um, can really help overcome that feeling of inadequacy and certainly kind of help develop that. It's like that reflective piece that helps develop your identity. So that's just the last little nugget to leave y'all with. Well, that's a great piece of advice, Lindsay. Thank you again so much for being a guest on the show today. Thank you all so much for having me. I appreciated it. If you want to continue to hear up-to-date topics from us and our guests, please like and subscribe. You can listen to us for free on your favorite podcast app and check out our show notes below to see links and highlights of the episode. And remember, you can separate and stand out.